Hi, um, welcome back to Africa as a Country, or in short, AIAC Talk. This happens to be episode 22, and it is our first of the new year. If you've forgotten who we are, I know it's like in this age of short attention span, in which <laughs> direction last week is this place this week, but I don't know what's this week's story. Um, uh, oh, a new president in the United States. I am Sean Jacobs, and I'm streaming from Brooklyn, New York. With me is Will Shoki. He's in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are the co-presenters of Africa's Country's weekly discussion and interview show. Our producer is Antoinette Engel. She's in Cape Town, South Africa. And if you missed our last episode, December, which was basically our end of year or Christmas show, you can watch clips from that on our YouTube channel or check out the whole thing on our Patreon, along with all of the episodes from our archive. And that was a great show. We brought back a ton of guests who appeared from the last six months to basically just go over the depressing scene that was the world in 2020. It wasn't that much of a cheerful show, even though it was good fun. And we tried to look ahead if there is such a thing to 2021. Uh, and now we're here and we have a fantastic program for you today. We're joined by two wonderful guests, Ashal Prabhala and Dr. Indira Govender, who will be talking to us about the politics of COVID-19 vaccines. First, we have Ashal, who's a campaigner for public access to emergency drugs, and he will break down vaccine politics. And then Dr. Govender will talk to us about the COVID-19 vaccine skeptics. We want to understand what kind of politics drives a lot of that anti-vaccination sentiment, the skepticism, everything in between. So if you're not familiar with the show, uh, what we usually do is we open up proceedings by commenting briefly um, on another political event, which is not the thing that we discussing with our guests. And in this case, unless you were under the rock or you just not paying any attention, um, last week Uganda held its, uh, it had an, had an election um, this was the sixth election, I think, 96, 2001, 2011, 2016, and now 2021, which is that uh, since Uwari Museveni took power in uh, 1986 um, and he, in a military coup, and then 10 years later, he ran like the first elections. And what was, uh, you know, again, uh, we don't have to surprise you, he won. Uh, <laughs> he won. <laughs> People, with there. <laughs> you won like a Lakers season with an asterisk behind it. But let's not talk too much about it because it was a serious matter. In fact, I mean, it, it, it. just to name a few things, and then I'd like Will to kind of just, if we could just quickly talk a little bit about, you know, this question of like, does it even matter that like Ugandans should vote? I mean, it's like, and again, we don't want to, we're not there, so we can't, we can't say how people should conduct their political struggles and we, we will support them you know, while they're in it. I mean, there's no debating about it, but this is uh, Museveni winning elections six times in a row and how he does it, there's nothing right about it. And I'll just quickly summarize some of the elements of it. Uh, basically harassing the opposition in the lead up to the, to the, the day of voting by mass, ar mass arrest. Um, right now, I think even though the election is over, Bobby Wine is under some kind of house arrest. He can't leave his house. This is the opposition candidate. Uh, he can't go buy food. I mean, it's it's out of control. Uh, the the using on the day before the elections, 
sending in a special army unit to like patrol the streets, particularly in opposition strongholds. But I think what was striking about this was, so in the past, Museveni would usually run against uh, sort of some of his contemporaries, people who were in the liberation movement with him, because remember there was a, Bolton Abote was in charge in Uganda, Museveni lost an election, he went to the bush, he led a military struggle, he came out um, and he came into power. And so over time, people, his own people in the NRM, they lost sort of confidence in the movement and they went into opposition. Some of them ran against him as president, but he was just very good at cutting them down, like arresting, harassing, some of the same tactics he's using against Bobby Wine. But the interesting thing is, it seems like this time around, um, it was different. Bobby Wine, them had managed to puncture some of the, the support or, or the control that they had over, over the NRM had over rural areas. And so it made for an interesting election. This was also an election, despite the fact that they shut, tried to shut down the internet. Um, this it came with a hashtag, we are removing a dictator. I mean, it was just incredible. It, it seemed for once, and, and, and again, we've written a lot about Bobby Wine. He's not perfect, there's a lot of contradictions, but you know, as a starting point, Uganda, Ugandans want democracy. And it was clear that something was coming here. And then in the end, we just get this like weird result, <laughs> 56 from 70. 30 whatever odd for 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 uh, Bobby Wine, which we know is also like a tactic in sort of autocratic regimes. It's like you you can't win by 99% anymore. So you have to like pretend that you just got the plurality of the votes and that the opponent, the opponent got like he's whatever, 30%. So in any case, well, what did you make of like for all this like politically? I mean, is elections like, is this still a tactic? Particularly in these sort of like really what seems like, you know, this is an autocratic state. Yeah, you know, Sean, it's, as you've already laid out, it's hard not to sink into despair when thinking about how it always just seems every single election is going to be a fait accompli, the incumbent is always going to win, they control all of the key institutions, all of the key structures of government, and so they have this asymmetrical power to ensure that things go their way. And when you look within the region, a similar thing is happening in Tanzania's next, and in Uganda's next door neighbor, rather, in Tanzania, these tactics that we're seeing, especially of shutting down the internet in the week of elections to try and suppress dissent because information is increasingly playing a crucial role in how people come to perceive their political situation. But I, I do think what's interesting is that if you listen to Museveni's interviews, it's almost as if he he feels more, let's say, paranoid than he ever has about the viability of what he's doing. Um, I think one thing that he repeatedly keeps sort of identifying as a trend in Ugandan politics is he talks about why his constituency is being constructed mostly of urban, lumpen, proletarian youth and He's always dismissive of them. He talks of them as these young troublemakers who have no idea about the real concerns of the people. And in Museveni's imagination, the real people of Uganda are the rural strongholds that he still exercises. There's a lot of power over, but which are also slipping from his grip. And I think what we're noticing here is, is this dynamic where I think there's an increasing generational divide in a lot of African countries and younger people who are more tech savvy, who are more, you know, who have a lot to say and who want to play an increasing role in shaping the future of their country are starting to do that. And I think that, you know, it's very easy to look at this situation and to, to 
as I began, say, well, this looks like uh, nothing can ever happen to unseat Museveni's power and to feel despondent about it. But I, I do think we're going to start to notice how this contradiction in Ugandan society is increasingly going to become untenable and it's going to explode somehow in some way. It's already starting to do that. When that happens, it won't be pretty. Um, I think it's going to be very ugly. But I do think that there's there's reasons to be, I guess, I mean, I don't want to say optimistic because there's nothing to be optimistic about, but I just feel like the, the objective conditions of Ugandan society, you know, the, the country Museveni took over in 1986 is very different. Right. There's also a global capitalist crisis and things are going to worsen. And as those objective conditions start to play a role, people are going to start responding and they're going to start wanting more and making demands of that, no matter how bad the suppression gets. Um, I think we're going to see more of that. Right, yeah, Museveni sort of wavers between, as you said, kind of paranoia and trying to to to, to remain, to stay up to date, trying to pretend like he's cool. So exactly, there's, yeah. there's videos on the internet of him like making a rap song. There's other <laughs> of him, there's, we were looking earlier today before he came on the program at this video where he's doing exercise inside his office. And this is from like last year during the, during the, at the height of COVID and him saying that uh, people should be exercising in their houses, and as somebody sort of pointed out, he doesn't realize that most, you know, that's not that's not the reality for most poor people. I think the one thing that I, as I said, he's sort of wavering between kind of paranoia um, and wanting to show that he's connected. It's interesting that he also, which seems to be the the last vestige of of this kind of leader, he now pretends like he's some kind of old man, rural, uh, sort of fatherly, grandfatherly. Uh, you know, that he doesn't read much, that he's just like a simple man. <laughs> and you then discover that in the 1960s, he studied um, political science and economics at the University of Dar es Salaam. Or that in 1986, when he came to power, he had he had very good connections within the academic community. And in fact, I think he hired Mondani to do a, uh, to lead a commission into the reform of local government. Of course, as we later learned, they did not take Mondani's advice. And Mondani himself wrote about that in the book um, Citizen and Subject, showing you that at the heart of what also reproduces power in a place like Uganda is that a lot of the elements of um, colonialism um, had been retained in the system. But in any case, we want to go one more, then we have to bring in our first guest. Yeah. Sort of, this relates to where you're at currently. You know, America's going to inaugurate a new president tomorrow, right? And one thing that a lot of people have written about very well is about how Museveni's power ends up being entrenched by how much the United States backs him because he plays a strategic role trying to ensure peace in the region, fighting the Al-Shabaab threats in Somalia, fighting the threats of, of rebels in the DRC and so on and so forth. So it'll be interesting to see if there's gonna be a shift in, in foreign policy from the Biden administration. Uh, there's, there's no... So Samantha Power is, is in that administration, so who knows if that's going to happen. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I maybe the, the door is more open than it ever has been to put pressure in the United States to shift its foreign policy right, position. Right, that's the one, exactly, exactly. We, 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 we want to make the transition to our first guest, but just quickly on this, we have an article actually on, the, on, on Africa as a country about um, the U.S.'s role in all of this, like what we, you know, Politics is local. We get that. There is about the reproduction of power. Is about 
um, coddling local elites, handing you know handing out businesses, whether it's oil or mining. All this play out in Uganda. In Uganda, this is loads of people who've made money off the kind of Museveni regime. But it's also true that Museveni plays a role in that region. There's an article on Africa's countries on the screen right now. But there's also there's a great article I think short though in the in the Daily Maverick uh, today that's also about the same the same kind of um, uh, uh, support that Museveni um, enjoys in the region because he's kind of a, a proxy in a way exactly. the proxy of the u.s government um, in the region anyway let's get to our first guest well, while we're on the subject of global imperial power structures this is a good time to bring on our first guest who today is ashal prabala and he's a coordinator of the access ibsa project which campaigns for access to medicines in india brazil and south africa he works between those three countries but is mostly based out of bangalore in india and Ashal, we're excited to have you on. We think that you're doing some fantastic work at the moment. And before we talk specifically about the COVID vaccines, we would like to know what does Access IBSA do? Thank you. It's nice to be here. And nice to meet you, William. And nice to see you again, Sean. Um, I, I work on Brazil and South Africa. They're uh, remarkably similar countries. They lead the regions they're in. They have uh, industrial capacity. Uh, they have uh, the political and economic clout to occasionally go against what the European Union and the United States want them to do. And they've all had a sort of shared long history of working since about the AIDS crisis. So since the turn of the century on finding ways to make life-saving medicines cheaper in these countries so that their governments and societies can function. But look, um, I know I'm not allowed to digress, but there's actually a very interesting inter section to the previous segment you just ran. Um, so one of the people I, I most admire, who I work closely with and I immensely like, is Winnie Dianima. Winnie Dianima heads uh, UNAIDS. She's an undersecretary general of the United Nations. And her husband is uh, Kizabe Sijay, who uh, has been routinely knocked up, actually, uh, over the years for his immensely growing popularity with the Ugandan electorate, uh, who decided not to run in the elections this year. Um, and I think therefore uh, escaped the same fate that Bobby Wine and others suffered. Um, but is, uh, with, this is just an interesting fact. She actually worked with Beni uh, and Kizab CJ and others uh, fighting uh, in the bushes uh, through uh, the Idi Amin and the Milton Obote regimes, uh, which they sought to overthrow. Um, so she's a fascinating, fascinating person, uh, someone I personally greatly admire. And someone who's also whose attention to both the global AIDS crisis as well as in particular in this instance uh, fighting for access to coronavirus vaccines, I think has been about the most effective of any campaigner working in this pandemic. So just before you 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 mentioned that there's a there's a kind of a struggle since the sort of the turn of the millennium around um, access to medicines. Can you just kind of like? Briefly, and I know you can, as I said before you came on the air, you can write an essay on this, but can you just sort of briefly take us through that, through that struggle more recently and kind of where the major victories were that people are trying to build on as we kind of now deal with the struggle around drugs for COVID? I'd love to, Sean. I'm also going to digress a little bit with you there. <laughs> so um, yesterday was Binyamanga Wainana's birthday, and I... Uh, remember that six his coming out yesterday, I'm a homosexual mom. 
um, which both you and I were involved with and talked about exactly six years ago to this day. Um, and I, I did feel that the first time Africa as a country comes on air uh, in 2021, uh, one day after Binyamanga's birthday, uh, it should be mentioned somewhere. So I did. Right. So what happened at the turn of the century was uh, uh, the confluence of a couple of things. In 1996, the World Trade Organization was created. Uh, 1996 was also the, almost exactly the year when people discovered that AIDS was not a thing that primarily affected uh, Western countries, Europe and America, but in fact actually most affected third world countries, uh, especially Sub-Saharan Africa, but also large parts of Latin America and Asia. But 1996 was also the year another really wonderful thing happened, which was that uh, AIDS activists in the United States put pressure on their very conservative governments to devote resources to treatments for AIDS. And what they created in 1996 was something called highly effective antiretroviral therapy. So what this meant was that AIDS went from being a death sentence to being a chronic condition like diabetes. Except it came with a cost. It came with a cost of $10,000. And it came with the backing of the World Trade Organization that it suddenly created this global regime of intellectual property rights that even very poor countries had to adhere to. So South Africa exploded in the late 1990s. Zaki Ahmed and a group of his colleagues created the treatment action campaign in honor of Simon and Kohli. Uh, Simon was an anti-apartheid activist, a member of the ANC, and someone who was also uh, out, gay, and uh, HIV positive. He died uh, because of a, a complete lack of access to antiretrovirals. They weren't even available in the country at the time that he died. And the treatment action campaign was founded in his honor. And that really was the epicenter of a, a global movement that sort of mushroomed out of there and spread its tentacles to Brazil, to India, to Thailand, and a range of other places. And then over the years, uh, ratched up a bunch of really, really good wins. I mean, the first being AIDS, the fact that by about 2006 or seven, uh, a combination of this incredibly fierce activism and I think the inability of pharmaceutical companies to deny access to AIDS medicines any longer because the shame was just getting too much, created uh, a solution to the problem. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry did incredibly stupid things. Um, the, the joke that I like actually is um, a pharmaceutical industry was asked a couple of years after 1999 when they sued the South African government, um, why they thought it was a good idea to sue Nelson Mandela because he was the president at the time. Uh, five years after you know, 300 years of brutal slavery. And he said, look, we had to. Mother Teresa was already dead. Uh, so, so, and uh, in retrospect, it's, it's funny, as it happened, it was incredibly tragic. Uh, many, many rich countries played a horrendous role, actually, in uh, preventing South Africa from gaining access to AIDS medication that it could afford sooner and faster. Uh, it was a tragedy, but they won. Uh, and there were subsequent wins of a kind. There was a cancer treatment in India called imatinib for chronic myeloid leukemia, a form of blood cancer. Uh, India fought a battle that lasted between five and ten years to gain full access to that medicine uh, and in the result also take control of its own patent law which was being challenged by this Swiss American multinational Novartis. Uh, in Brazil, there's been a vibrant struggle that has had some wins and some losses on uh, finding ways to make hepatitis C treatment affordable. One of the things that happened towards the late uh, aughts, 
is that hepatitis C became this mushrooming, life-threatening problem in Eastern Europe and in Latin America. It's almost at the same proportions as the AIDS crisis in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, there were no treatments for hepatitis C until this point, when one treatment, sofosbuvir, came to the market in the late aughts. It's just that it came to the market at a price of $84,000 in the United States. And even the Washington Post and the Times commented on the absurd price of this drug. You know, this is, of course, before cancer treatments then came to the market at hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, and so <laughs> there's an escalating uh, layer of outrage, I suppose, that's uh, occurred over the years. There's been a, a range of different problems like this. I think that what shifted in about 2016 or so, it was black people who were being affected by lack of access to medicine. So I think the conventional wisdom up to that point, you know, I've been working on this since about 2003. Uh, we've never actually had to fight campaigns for uh, British people or uh, middle-class Americans on British and American soil. And yet last year, I worked on a campaign in the UK to uh, gain access uh, there for children with cystic fibrosis uh, to a drug called Ocambi, which is, again, one of these excellent, effective treatments that can uh, infinitely increase uh, the quality of life and prolong the life of young children under the age of 10 with cystic fibrosis. Incredibly heartbreaking. The company was holding oh, out two, two, two. on Monopoly. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry, to jump to jump to the president, president, while you're talking about monopolies and talking about these these struggles, which there have been uh, a, a deeply entrenched history over the last twenty to thirty years of struggles across the world to gain access to vital medicines. One would sort of hope that a lot of these struggles would have fundamentally transformed the practice of pharmaceutical companies as well as nation states that are in collaboration with pharmaceutical companies. So to talk about COVID-19, has that been the case? And I mean, the kind of short answer is not really because what we're seeing now is richer countries which have procured large hordes of vaccines. They're already rolling them out to their populations. Some middle-income countries have began this process and vaccines are largely absent in poorer countries. So as far as COVID-19 is concerned, when we think in relation to the wonderful picture of struggle to gain access to vaccines that you've painted for us now, how come that hasn't translated so much to an equitable, equitable distribution of COVID-19 vaccines uh, across the world? Or, or maybe I'm wrong, maybe it has, or it's too early to, to make that judgment call. And can you, can you, before you answer, can you also add as to like which Western countries are actually doing Right, you know who who are the good performers, even under these uh, bad conditions. Yeah. I'll start with that actually, because that's the easiest thing to answer. None. So, <laughs> um, and the the I think what's prevented uh, the movement over the last twenty years from creating some kind of uh, escalating change is that every time there's a crisis, it's confined to that particular disease. So it was the AIDS crisis. It was then the cancer crisis, the hepatitis crisis. In the US, it was the insulin crisis. In the UK, it was the cystic fibrosis crisis. Uh, it's never thought of as the pharmaceutical industry crisis, right? Which is really what it is and what we've all been suffering from these 20 years. So when we went into the COVID crisis, uh, into the pandemic, 
there was already this deep and rich history, but there was also this growing awareness in places like the UK and the US, some of the richest countries on earth, that even there, middle-class people in those countries were having a really hard time accessing some of these more expensive drugs. Um, so so there, was, there was absolutely no uh, residue from these struggles that uh, attached itself to the pharmaceutical industry going into the pandemic. So not only did that not attach itself, but it grew worse. And the reason it grew worse is that governments sent more money towards the research and treatment, um, uh, towards research into treatments and vaccines. So the first things that we had coming out in 2020 were treatments like remdesivir and uh, later on uh, what are called monoclonal antibodies. Um, now, of course, we have the vaccines emerging, but those vaccines were funded way back in 2020. And there have been several billions of dollars that have gone in both to commission the research as well as to guarantee large orders of these vaccines when they're successful. And it's sort of metastasized uh, in a way that I really couldn't imagine. It's now been about two months since we've seen these jubilant scenes from the UK and the US of nurses getting the vaccines and elderly people getting them. And I am so happy to see them. I just wish that there was even a person in this country who could share in that happiness or in uh, countries which are even worse off than India who don't have the capacity to make their own vaccines. Those countries are truly, truly uh, in the worst possible situation here because they have to depend on these ridiculous handouts. Um, so one of the schemes, just to illustrate how ridiculous these are, one of the schemes that now is being uh, touted everywhere uh, is that rich countries who bought up more vaccines than they need, like Canada, for instance, which has, has bought up nine doses of this person who lives in Canada, uh, will then donate their excess vaccines to poor countries, right? Uh, and it's, it's just like, <laughs> I just, I'm laughing. It's just so ridiculous. Like, it's unbelievable. It's, it's really, really hard to fathom how in the 21st century, in a pandemic that's gripped the world, decimated the global economy, uh, taken over 2 million lives so far, that people can think that that's, this is somehow a reasonable measure of compassion that you can show uh, to help people who have less access to vaccines. So so I have a, I have a sort of a follow-up, which is kind of based on what um, people, are, people who are watching are asking this question. And I want to sort of broaden it out so I know the work is mostly India, Brazil, South Africa, which are, have any of these governments, um, how, would you, how would you assess their performance around kind of procuring, uh, manufacturing um, COVID vaccine? Like what, what, how should we judge them? People, people are sort of using words like disaster. I mean, I see some, a couple of comments on the, you may have seen them on the screen with regards to South Africa. Um, so I'm curious to know from you, like of these, um, of these uh, uh, different countries, like who do you think has actually done better? I know that we have this sort of, we have Gavi, you know, this, the COVAX, this sort of broader context, but where, where, do the, where, where do you see these countries like South Africa, Brazil, India, Fiddy in this story? Yeah, so this is really interesting. I'm raising my voice a little bit because I think there's a complaint that my voice is too soft. I don't know what it is. I'm using a new set of headphones. Uh, but so if I'm screaming, then please adjust your volume. Uh, India and South Africa have been pretty good. Uh, they made a proposal at WTO to have the WTO suspend uh, intellectual property monopolies in this pandemic. That is still being discussed. Um, Brazil, under Bolsonaro, surprisingly, has been really bad. And what 
uh, Brazil did is unconscionable because it joined a handful of rich countries, literally about eight rich countries, in opposing the proposal that India and South Africa uh, floated at the WTO. Meanwhile, last week, the, the president, Jair Bolsonaro, wrote to the prime minister of India, uh, our own fascist, to say that he needed an emergency shipment of a couple of million vaccines because their supplies of vaccines haven't kicked in as yet. Um, it is what is happening in Brazil, I think, is by far the most egregious situation possible. They delayed vaccine rollouts as uh, long as they could. They've resisted vaccines. The president has been incredibly harmful in terms of what he said about vaccines. Uh, there is a battle between the state of Sao Paulo and uh, the federal administration based in Brasilia. So the, the Sao Paulo has rolled out Sinovac, a, Chinese, uh, a private Chinese corporation uh, which created a vaccine called Coronavac. Uh, just yesterday. Uh, meanwhile, the center is trying to airlift vaccines from India. Some of their own smaller states in the north and the northwest have made their own deals with Russia. It's an unbelievable mess in which infection rates are skyrocketing, in which deaths are skyrocketing. And uh, it's by far the country that's handled this the worst. And I think that therefore really needs to be called out. India and South Africa, I think, have been a bit feckless, uh, aside from this one inspired proposal at the WTO, which was really the work of one South African, Mustaqim de Gama, who is the trade representative uh, at the South African mission to the WTO. India just sort of tagged on on this exercise. The, 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 I think there is a curious situation happening, which is that uh, of all of the Western vaccines that exist, you have about nine vaccine candidates, and only two have thought about global access in any serious way. Only one of those vaccines has actually been approved, and that's the AstraZeneca vaccine. They've given out a contract to the Serum Institute, a large volume vaccine manufacturer in India, to produce a billion vaccines of, of the AstraZeneca candidate in 2021, and another billion in 2022. These vaccines are for all low and lower middle income countries, including South Africa, except the government of India is now going to decide who gets those vaccines among those many, many countries. And this is a really interesting situation because you have something that should be equitably distributed among all these countries. You could argue that they should all get the same percentage, including India. That's not going to happen. We're going to get a greater percentage because the government can take it. But at the same time, there's something almost perversely opposite that's happening in South Africa, which is that Johnson & Johnson which has a candidate that is expected to go into approval next week. It's, it's very, very close to being approved. They have an outsourced manufacturing contract with Aspen, which is a South African generic company, and they're making 300 million doses of this vaccine in South Africa. How many of those doses do you think will go to South Africa, guess? Zero, because Aspen will have, as per its contract with uh, Johnson & Johnson, will have to ship those vaccines to Johnson & Johnson to distribute. So this is a really perverse situation, right? Where you have one country which is possibly meddling too much and is probably going to take a much larger share of the pie than it deserves. And then you have this other country meddling too little, not going to take possibly at the moment the share of vaccines it deserves. Goodness, I mean, I, I, I don't know how to, to follow up that sort of really depressing picture that you portrayed, but... One question to ask maybe in relation to this is, there have been some mechanisms set up to try and bolster the coordination between different countries, 
And there's this vaccine alliance, which has been in place for a while, which is called Gavi. And as you've written in The Guardian, Gavi is this 20-year-old public-private partnership that believes the marriage of markets and philanthropy will bring vaccines to everyone in the world. And the COVAX facility, which is oft talked about, is a creation uh, or initiative, rather, of, of Gavi. And it's this fund that's been created to cross-subsidize vaccine access between different countries. How How is that going? Is it actually working? I mean, given what you've just told to us now, the fact that India uh, is still able to exercise this muscle and say, no, we're still going to be the ultimate decider of which countries get these vaccines, kind of suggests these efforts aren't really working. But how much should we believe in these initiatives? Uh, the fact that they've been created through this sort of neoliberal dream of a quote-unquote public-private partnership is one thing to suggest that it ends up being feckless and doesn't really do much. But what's your take on on whether or not Gavi is something that's actually creating equitable access and whether or not this COVAX facility is a mechanism that is creating fair distribution? Uh, the short answer for how Gavi is going is really, really badly. Uh, Gavi took in billions of dollars of uh, public contributions from rich countries as well as corporations and the Gates Foundation to put that into a fund which they would use to subsidize coronavirus vaccines for poor countries. Now, the idea was uh, they would buy a quantity of these vaccines and then ship them off, right? That is their traditional job. Their traditional job is to send vaccines to poor countries and to raise money from rich countries. In this pandemic, they thought that they'd pool money from both rich countries and poor countries. So they would buy for both, for all world, so that they'd get economies of scale and they could negotiate better. So that, in the first instance, didn't work out very well because all the rich countries, they've already bought vaccines for themselves. They don't need Gavi to buy their vaccines. So they, they didn't go that route in any significant way. The contributions Gavi raised fell short of what they needed. And so as a result, Gavi to date, it's now what, January 19th? Gavi hasn't shipped a single vaccine. Gavi estimates shipping vaccines towards uh, the end of the first quarter of 2021. Gavi estimates in its first year, it might be able to cover about 3% of the population of low countries that it was set up to serve. It doesn't sound like a success to me. I mean, it honestly sounds extremely inadequate um, and it sounds like a, a, a poor response. Part of the reason it's a poor response is that Gavi is stuck in a vortex of... Um, of, of Western pharmaceutical and philanthropic uh, dystopia, where it cannot get its head out of the idea that A, there may be vaccines outside Western countries that are worth looking at. It cannot get its head outside the idea that anything other than negotiating for small discounts with these vaccine manufacturers for studies to send off to poor countries, that anything outside of that would work. So it cannot, for instance, think that it cannot bring itself to imagine that creating licenses for production in poor countries of these Western vaccines would be a solution because it believes fundamentally in the model that pharmaceutical industries have sold so successfully to the world. And it's now paying for it. It's paying for it because it's never had to compete in a situation where it's buying vaccines that the West actually needs. You know, Gavi's bread and butter is, you know, the tuberculosis vaccine, the meningitis vaccine. Nobody thinks there, right? I take these things here. But it's never had to compete with well-paying customers and governments in Europe and America. It now is. And it turns out 
that that competition doesn't really work out well for poor countries. Um, so they're getting the short end of the stick, and they will continue to for a while, as long as they rely solely on Gavi uh, to to get the vaccines they need to restore their economies, to restore livelihoods in the country, and to save lives. So just one la uh, one last question for you, Arcel, before you, because I know it's late where you are. Um, what about what's the deal with non-Western vaccines? You've mentioned India. Uh, but what about the vaccines that are being produced by Russia and China? And then can you also, because when we, when last year during COVID, people were also saying, let's look away from the West and look towards other kind of uh, other other examples of, of successfully dealing with COVID. Vietnam was mentioned, Indian state of Kerala. Um, and just with, but particularly with vaccines then, has anyone planned to or have they broken uh, patent laws or agreements? Or is nobody even trying that? Because, so one is like, I know when you say Russia, China, people go, uh, so can you can you say something about Russia and China? And then can you say something about what other kinds of struggles are being waged, whether at the level of governments or at the level of social movements? And I'm asking about governments because I do notice that a lot of our South African listeners, they don't actually think that the South African government is doing that well. And you are sort of in from where, where you're coming from at the level of what's happening at the WTO, you can actually see some some useful stuff that the South African government is doing. So the interesting thing to know about the Chinese and Russian vaccines, which I've been working a lot on lately, uh, is that Anban Pillay, who's the Deputy Director General of Health in South Africa, uh, gave a radio interview to Cape Talk some weeks ago, where he said, look, these vaccines from Russia and China, some people are taking them. We don't want to bring in vaccines that might not do the job or cause some great side effects, so we will not be using that. Uh, and, I, and I say this just to illustrate what the perception of these vaccines is, not just in, in Western countries where they're seen as kind of a nefarious plot that has been hatched by, uh, I think, what is astonishingly still called the communist governments of Russia and, and China, um, uh, or, you know, other kinds of ways in which the quality of the vaccines is linked to the authoritarian and malevolent nature of the states that they come from, right? Now, I, I, living in an authoritarian and malevolent state, I can produce, there isn't a link between uh, how evil uh, a government is and a vaccine that then is produced in its borders. Now, the, the, the funny thing, though, is that the perception is a really strong one. Now, this is despite the fact that these vaccines have been working, they've been put into use. So while Western philanthropy has been getting its uh, uh, ducks in a row, I was in Dubai over Christmas. Uh, there are thousands of people who lined up every day since about the middle of December to get the Sinopharm vaccine. There are three leading candidates. So there is a Sinopharm vaccine from its different candidate that it has. There is a Coronavac vaccine from Sinovac, which is a private uh, corporation. And then there is Sputnik V, which is the vaccine that was developed by the Gamaleya Institute and is marketed by the Russian Sovereign Wealth Fund. Now, these are the three vaccines that have the most approvals around the world, the most number of deals around the world. Each of them has production capacities of up to a billion, is what they say. Uh, they've struck deals in the hundreds of millions with a range of different middle-income countries around the world. It's, they are being used. Sinovac has been used since yesterday in Brazil. Uh, Sputnik has been used since a couple of weeks ago in Argentina. The... Sinopharm vaccine, as I said, has been given up to now about a million people, including the ruler of the prime minister of the United Arab Emirates, which is a high income country. So in a range of middle income countries, the solution has increasingly been to move to uh, Russia and China when they can't get what they want from Western pharmaceutical companies. 
in some cases, they do their own trials. Some cases, they approve it based on the data that they're given. In all cases, however, these vaccines are no, not particularly different. Yes, they may be tools of the state. They may be used in diplomacy. India now has a vaccine, Covaxin, which is a similar indigenous vaccine that the Indian government is already using for uh, diplomacy. But that doesn't affect the vaccine itself. The problem, I think, uh, with the Western pharmaceutical companies is that they have held on to their monopolies. They've refused to license them with the exception of AstraZeneca and Novavax to a lesser extent. The Russian and Chinese vaccines have shown a great willingness to license their technology, to license their intellectual property. So they have all these different outsourced sites of production where they can make many, many more vaccines. They are running cooperative clinical trials in places like Brazil or in the UAE uh, and in a range of other countries. There are a bunch of promises that have been made to sub-Saharan African countries uh, in the com in, as a combination of grants and loans, uh, mainly, I think, by uh, the Chinese premier. But unfortunately, they haven't really translated into uh, exact commitments and contracts or signed deals. And so we see very little evidence of that. We see there's a lot of talk and there's actually uh, fairly little evidence that there are vaccines that are being shipped to these countries as part of a solid deal. Sputnik has deals in South African countries, Sudan, uh, South Sudan, uh, Zambia, uh, and uh, Guinea. Uh, but apart from these stray instances, uh, there aren't, these countries have not yet uh, signed on the dotted line with China or Russia. But in the future, presumably, if there are ways in which the WHO can vet these vaccines and certify their quality and make people more comfortable with them, I think that Indigenous, non-Western vaccines from China and Russia primarily, but also from India, could be a significant solution for a lot of low- and middle-income countries to find a reasonably assured way to exit this pandemic. Thank you so much, Ashal. I mean, before we let you go, I want to ask you probably the, the hardest question yet, which is, are you going to take the vaccine? <laughs> uh, yeah, I would, I would take any vaccine that I got, any vaccine that I got. The Indian government, uh, as I mentioned, is authoritarian and malevolent. So we don't actually have a choice in what vaccine you can take at the moment. And uh, that's a little annoying. Uh, I'm nowhere near any of the uh, vulnerable categories uh, that will be prioritized for a vaccine, as I should not be. So I think it'll be a while before anyone offers me a vaccine. But yes. Absolutely. I would love to take it when it comes. Good on you. And thank you so much, Ashal, for, for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. We know it's late that side. So hope to see you soon and good luck. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. And now I think it's, it's time to bring on our next guest, who is Dr. Indira Govender. Dr. Govender is a medical doctor and researcher based in South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province. She works for the Africa Health Research Institute and is currently working on projects related to TB infection prevention and control for the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and joins us to discuss COVID quackery, I love that word, and denialism. She's also a frequent contributor to Africa as a Country and her most recent article was titled The Tools for Defeating Quackery. So we, we've asked Indira to join us to talk about COVID denialism and quackery. But first, uh, Indira, how would you assess the South African government's COVID vaccine strategy? I mean, there's, there's been some debate happening during this episode uh, on the comments where a lot of people have very strong feelings is doing. So what's, what's your impression of their efforts so far 
to both procure vaccines as well as to plan for rolling out those vaccines once they arrive in South African shores. And especially, especially if you've listened to, to sort of what Asal has said. Uh, okay, guys, I was having a really excellent connection. And just as you put me on, things started to get a bit shaky. So uh, <laughs> Murphy's Law. But thanks thanks a lot for, for inviting me to join. And it's really interesting listening to Ashal. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not looking great here in South Africa. I mean, we only just recently got a vaccine strategy coming out of the government in the past couple of weeks. And that was just bending to a lot of public pressure. And so, you know, now we know that the government has uh, made a plan to procure a certain proportion of uh, vaccines through this COVAX facility. They've been criticized again for putting all their baskets in one egg, uh, sorry, all their eggs in one basket and not, uh, you know, negotiating with other countries uh, to secure uh, larger doses. But the plan is to now hopefully vaccinate healthcare workers at the front line because uh, we've just lost too many. It's every day there's uh, hearing about doctors, nurses, um, other frontline staff in hospitals and clinics that are dying. So really, this is, is it's a priority. Sean, you're you're on you're on mute, man. Yeah. Tell you this. Well, you said Murphy's Law, right? Um, yeah. we, we know that South Africa has like a very, uh, I'm going to exaggerate and say proud history, but South Africa has a history in South Africa of government and social movements working together around uh, medicine or drugs. I mean, the AIDS, the AIDS case comes to mind when in 99, and Ashal mentions that the government takes the, the pharmaceutical industry to court and it has the support of the AIDS movement. Of course, we know that there was other, some other politics there, and Becky was reluctant, he was denialist and so on. But is there, is there any appetite in South Africa for, for taking on big pharma on COVID, for uh, breaking, are you sort of rightly smiling about this? And also, is, has, is it, is it, might it also be that the relationship between, if you want, the government and social movements fighting around public health issues that that's changed and not the same like it was in say around sort of 99, 2001, 2004, if you want? Um, I think that the fact that thousands of people are dying uh, and that, you know, this, this virus is decimating the country, uh, including health services, it's just such a vicious cycle because, you know, uh, even with the HIV, uh, pandemic, there was uh, the way in which that virus is transmitted. There, you know, as a healthcare was <clears throat> being infected, they don't know whether they got it in their clinical space or if they got it in the community. So the, the way in which this virus is ravaging the country and um, the kind of like stalling from government is really creating a, a situation that's ripe for um, 
kind of mass action is what I'd like to say. But uh, there is also the People's Coalition, the COVID-19 People's Coalition that is uh, constantly uh, trying to educate people and get more and more individuals and organizations to sign on to put pressure on the national government. Um, the, the, the issues that um, Michelle spoke about, you know, about intellectual property and the World Trade Organization, you know, that's not part of everyday conversations. It's not common knowledge. People still don't understand what these intellectual property rights mean and how they affect their access to medicines. You know, I, I really wish that more people, that this information could be translated into something that is more user friendly, that could ignite uh, mass action, the kind of protests that we've seen in India, for example, it, it would be amazing to see that because it's really a very pertinent issue to our health and to our lives. And I mean, yeah, when you talk about the government stalling and stalling amidst this awful thing, which, as you say, is decimating so many lives and, and livelihoods, what is it about their strategy that has meant that's the case? Because when you try to compare it to other comparable countries on the continent, as far as in terms of the economic makeup uh, of that country, I mean, Kenya, for example, ordered 24 million doses of vaccines from AstraZeneca, and South Africa still lagging behind. Ashal already explained how- South Africa ordered a million and a half, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. Even yeah. enough to cover the healthcare workers it has to in terms of the first wave of vaccination. Um, and Ashal described how there's going to be 300 million doses of a vaccine produced on South African soil, but absolutely zero is going to come to South Africans. So, I mean, on the one level, there's this noble effort that the South Africa government is embarking on at the level of these institutional structures to try and fight for equitable access across the world. But in another sense, it's also, you know, botching up securing vaccines for its own population and in a way that seems extremely avoidable and really perplexing. And what's your sense of, of what's been causing it? I mean, yeah, it's really, um, I would say it's unclear. There's a lot of, there are a lot of uh, things you could attribute it to, maybe just poor management, but then we had this amazing ministerial advisory committee uh, we then also discovered that when certain of these advisors spoke out against the government's uh, plans, they were then uh, no longer on the committee. So there's things like that. And then, you know, there's been like massive COVID-related corruption. And uh, there's just a, a lot of distrust around whether the government is going to be able to uh, deliver on just even the small amount of vaccines because we know that there are massive problems with just the supply chain of medicines in general in the public sector. So how are you going to get, you know, this in this emergency where you've had your health services partially decimated, um, you, you're not getting enough vaccines, you've got vaccine skepticism, how are you actually going to overcome that? So there are a lot of questions and there's a lot of doubt and yeah, we, we just we just have to keep asking. And, and there you've got a picture of the Chief Justice who uh, is not really helping the situation with his, uh, I would say, propaganda at this right. point. Which is, which is probably how I want to get to the next question, which is around kind of COVID skepticism, which is I'm, I'm remembering when 
when South Africa had in the early 2000s with the sort of reemergence of kind of the large scale of xenophobia. And it was found that um, in a lot of instances, average South Africans didn't often meet uh, people from elsewhere on the African continent, but they somehow held xenophobic views. And so a lot of this was then traced to pronouncements by public officials, uh, just people's skepticism about the fact that they, you know, that their economic situation wasn't improving. And so they displaced that anger the frustration onto somebody who was in the same position as theirs. Um, and we just look at the, the we just saw the, the South African Chief Justice, the image of him, I think he sort of made comments about how COVID was some satanic conspiracy, the mark of the bees, et cetera. Um, how, where do you think, where do you think the skepticism come from? And, and you've mentioned sort of also like the state's inability to perform corruption, waste, uh, do you think that all these things have kind of contributed to people getting into um, all kinds of weird theories about COVID that it doesn't exist or that, you know, now with the vaccine, I won't take the vaccine because I'm looking at some website telling me not to? Yeah, I mean, the, the definitely the government's track record is a part of the problem. Uh, but then there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of ignorance, uh, just, you know, understanding basic science, understanding how vaccines work, how infectious diseases spread, where this virus came from. Uh, I would say that, you know, in terms of a mass education program, the government has tried, but it's just, it's, it's, it's not adequate. And some of these questions uh, are rooted in fear and distrust and xenophobia. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, this coronavirus was referred to as a Chinese virus. So, you know, it's things like that. And, and if as a country you haven't addressed xenophobia, then of course that kind of sentiment latches on very easily. Uh, if you have like, uh, if you have a country where the health system is just failing people every day, it's failing 80% of this population. And, and just to say that, you know, uh, William referred to this in his paper, I'm sorry, in his article, that that Ipsos survey, you've you got to look at who the respondents were and that they were mostly urban people, uh, you know, probably with a, a solid income or something. And they are they have the, the choice to say, I don't want this vaccine. But 80% of our population uses the public sector. And in the public sector, vaccines are part of the service. That's like one of the things you're not even going to ask, be asked if you want or not. So those are, those are the people that are uh, going to come to clinics and expect to be vaccinated and then probably going to be uh, met with the same issues that have plagued the service forever. And so there's a lot of distrust and fear that, you know, that, that is across all, um, I would say, classes of society, all races in South Africa, there's just different reasons for, for this kind of vaccine skepticism. I mean, you, yeah, you, you touched on, on exactly what I wanted to talk about next, because I think referencing what I wrote about in the article, this is purely based off anecdote, which is that a lot of the vaccine skepticism seems to have this kind of distinctive middle-class character to it just because a lot of the reasons given for it always are in advance of something else. So a lot of people saying don't take the vaccine or saying don't do it because it's an imperialist plot by the West to insert microchips into Africans and then control them and entrench their 
world domination. And then on the other end, there's a lot of people saying, don't take the vaccine because you can't trust this government and better trust these alternative medicine practitioners like Tim Noakes who are telling us to not take the vaccine. So, and it's also this group of people that are spending a lot of their time on social media who are getting completely sort of observed in, uh, absorbed rather in, in a lot of the stuff. But I suppose the, the, the question I want to ask in relation to that is, do you think it's also, I mean, you spoke about the government's mass education campaign and I've started to see some of this begin in earnest over the last few weeks as the anti-vax hysteria has gone into overdrive. But is it also a failure of the government's inability to sort of, from the beginning of the pandemic, spread information about not only the virus and infectious diseases generally, but also about how it's going to be vaccinating the population and so on and so forth. And it just, I get the sense that there's also a lot of ambivalence at the level of the national government as far as wanting to to immunize the population a lot of figures there seem like they're not very trustworthy of the vaccines and it just seems to be translating into their very sluggish efforts to try and educate the public as far as what immunization entails yeah so i i would say that you know when the pandemic hit us there was really no discussion at that point about uh vaccines you know we never thought that within the space of a year we'd have vaccines because traditionally vaccine research and development takes years so that is also part of why people ask um they have doubts about this vaccine a lot of the questions from healthcare workers is how is this possible that we have a vaccine so quickly how do you know it's safe and that really comes down to the fact that a massive amount of resources have been put into developing this vaccine uh, to, to address the, the COVID pandemic. Um, but I mean, so, so now very quickly, our government has to face the fact that there is a vaccine. How are they going to get it? How are they going to administer it? And so, you know, just yeah, this, I think just this poor management of, of the entire pandemic has just led to a lot of stumbling along the way. And yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if that answers your question, uh, William, maybe you... Uh, I mean, it's, yeah. I was just yeah. gonna say, it sounds, it sounds like a correct picture, which is that it's almost like a lot of people are doing this to get back at the government almost, like the vaccine skepticism as far as what you're describing now is a sense of everything has gone so badly before and now this final stretch when there's a sudden expectation that you're supposed to jab yourself. I'm going to be more blunt. I think it's like two sets of people. It's one, the kind of like, it's ANC politics where you have Zuma supporters who yeah. would like to see the, 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 the Ramaphosa government, you know, which is very good at like, um, what do people say? He's really good at the like TV TV uh, uh, statement um, to make him fail. So so they, that, that's sort of there. And so they, they, they're tapping into lots of, you know, discourses and stuff that are shared with them on Twitter and Facebook and whatever. And then I think there's a sort of kind of white reactionary uh, bit of South Africa that also gets its information from, you know, another circuit, which is sort of white supremacy, Trumpism. Um, and you, you, you know, it's very obvious that that's, that that's the case. But I want to just link to that. There's also like in the US, I mean, where I'm currently based, there's also like medical doctors 
who engage in, in, in quackery and skepticism. I mean, the, there's a lot of these TV doctors. I, I mean, I can just think of this one example, this guy called Dr. Oz. And I think there's one other one, like you'll see them on Fox, you'll see them on CNN, touting all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, is, is that the case? And I know we just today, we're just talking about South Africa, but is that the case also in South Africa that you have people who are in the medical profession who, who say some of these same sort of bizarre, you know, promote bizarre theory um, and uh, uh, vaccine skepticism? I know this, you know, whether Tim Noakes, Tim Noakes is not a medical doctor, right? He's a nutritionist, but he's just sort of like poster boy for that kind of uh, politics. How is that? Is that stuff, does it matter? Is it widespread at all? And then I know I'm making this question very long, but I'm also sort of, there's always something that made me think, which is, so when there's surveys and, and we, we mentioned this, they'll say the sample was mostly urban based. Does that, the, so does that mean that rural people in South Africa trust the public health system doctors, or can we not make, can we not make that conclusion? Does it mean that poor black South Africans trust the public health system, even if it doesn't perform for them? I mean, one thing to add to that, which I think is interesting, is that globally, anti-vaccine uh, skepticism tends to have a higher prevalence in wealthier countries than in than in poorer countries. Does that translate to the class structure of the countries themselves? Okay, thanks. So let me uh, try to answer Sean. So. You know, linking back to the HIV AIDS pandemic, we had a proliferation of quackery. You know, or the Minister of Health at the time was also promoting uh, a lot of root vegetables as a, as treatment for, for AIDS. And then there was a lot of campaigning from the TAC, from uh, scientists as well, who were at the same time sidelined, but they kept up the fight and they brought all of the scientific evidence to light and they kept saying that, you know, this, this doesn't work and these people should be uh, basically silenced. We shouldn't be listening to them. And I was really hoping that our government would refer to that struggle in this new struggle because it's basically the same thing. We have a lot of people who are talking. There's, there's so many. You turn any corner and you're going to find somebody selling a cure or potential treatment or something to COVID. Or if it's not that, then it's a conspiracy theory. But we also have real doctors who are on the front line who are uh, dealing with like hundreds of COVID cases every day. Their ICUs are packed, their patients are dying, they're running out of ventilators, they are desperate. And uh, this is probably something they've never experienced before. So there are a lot of impassioned pleas on social media. There are petitions going around just today on national radio, I heard a doctor speaking about a drug that's currently another controversy known as ivermectin. It's used to treat parasitic infections. This doctor spoke very well about how it might, uh, you know, reduce the, you know, either treat the disease or prevent infection for COVID. And that she's planning to petition the president to uh, fast track approval for this drug because it's currently not approved for use in COVID. So, you know, as much as we have quackery, we also have this, this desperation from healthcare workers. And then you have patients who would otherwise not follow, uh, you know, they know where to look for their information. And then they have their doctor who's desperate who might say, well, I have this drug that could work for you. 
So, so they trust their doctors and um, they get caught up in these things. And then you have the government that is, you know, has to follow evidence-based guidelines and uh, science and not put the population in harm's way and at the same time not promote um, any kind of treatment that's not effective, even if it is safe for use and it's not going to do anything to you, it, it, it won't do anything to the coronavirus. So they also have to protect the population. And then you've got this massive movement on the ground. Uh, so I think there's there's a lot of tensions at the moment. But then to, to respond to the question about, you know, whether people trust health services, you know, when you have no other source when this is the only when the only clinic you have is like within a hundred kilometer radius and that's where you're going to go whether you are sick whether you've been stabbed whether you've broken a limb you don't have a choice so i think a large proportion of this country is in that situation where they don't have a choice and and that's it you know yeah i mean to ask you uh, as a closing question what is probably a bit of an unfair question, which is what is to be done? Uh, what is to be done as far as what the government can do to adjust its strategy, to feasibly procure vaccines and distribute them? So far, it's been a very aspirational strategy where by late 2021, we were already gonna begin phase three of vaccination, which is members of the general public who aren't in the, the especially vulnerable groups. What can it do to do that? Uh, does it need to try and strike more bilateral agreements? Is there any part to it negotiating some deal with Johnson & Johnson? And then what is to be done as far as trying to bolster vaccine willingness in the population? You mentioned this doctor who's touting ivervectin as another drug that we could use. I'm seeing a lot more people who are touting ivervectin as a drug that we could use. I'm seeing a lot of respectable figures touting it. I'm seeing a lot more respectable figures also starting to say that pursuing the path of procuring vaccines is also something that is not a successful strategy and we should focus on just prevention and so on and learn from other countries. So it just seems like wherever you look, um, as you were saying just now, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of desperation and a lot of hysteria and, and yeah, what can be done to in this vortex of, of, of chaos to carve some, not way out necessarily, but some, some feasible part? Yeah, I mean, that's, that is a tough question. I, I think uh, I'll say firstly that Ashawal went into detail around the mechanics of uh, vaccine procurement and, you know, he's exposed what is going on with, with South Africa's uh, situation. So, you know, South Africa just South Africans can firstly just try to educate themselves as much as possible. Um, you know, try to read up about what is going on. Follow the COVID nineteen uh, People's Coalition if you can. Uh, they they've broken it down very uh, you know into very user friendly information, um, and just keep putting pressure. Keep putting pressure like that's what we do in South Africa. <laughs> you know, uh, take it to the streets if you have to, because uh, we just can't, like, this is really, this is really decimating the country and our health services as well. So we, we just have to keep, we have to keep take, putting pressure on government for this. And I mean, one, one more question, which has just popped up, and maybe it's a, 
it's a way to make the what is to be done question a little bit more easy to answer. What is what is the country we should be learning from? I mean, in the early stage of the pandemic, we were looking to places like Vietnam and India to see how they handled the difficult dilemma of whether or not to go into lockdown, if so, to what extent, and how to curb spread without being authoritarian and harshening population. And at this stage of immunization, what do you think is the country that is sort of getting it right? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I don't know which country is getting it right with vaccines because as we've heard, there's, there are countries that are basically hoarding uh, large volumes of va vaccines and then there are countries that are uh, exporting vaccines to other countries without uh, thinking about their own population. And then there are country, there's a country that is going to be collecting a vaccine and then determining who gets it. So uh, in terms of that, I don't know. But we have, met, you know, you've mentioned uh, some of the Southeast Asian countries. So they have been commended for their test and trace uh, programs. And that is one of the things that South Africa just failed to get right, which is uh, testing people and contact tracing and then quarantining those who had had contact with other cases or um, isolating those who tested positive. So, you know, if, if there was something we could have done right in the early stages, or at least use the past year to, to develop that system, maybe we'd be in a better position today. Well, we're going to have to leave it at there. And it's, it's not the most hopeful note, but I think people should feel yeah. empowered to, to try and, and put more pressure on the governments. And, and hopefully, if the, if the situation remains unchanging, then people won't shy away from that. So, uh, Dr. Governor, we are exceptionally grateful that you came onto the show today. Uh, we're grateful to Ashal Prabal, who was on earlier. Grateful, as always, to my co-host, Sean Jacobs, who had to dash off and teach a class. And to our producer, Antoinette Engel, who's in Cape Town. And please remember to like and subscribe to the program, to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And join us next week, where we're going to be discussing Israel's increasing, increasing push normalization on the African continent. Someone on the comments was saying that Israel's got its vaccine, vaccine policy right. Well, they're not going to Palestinians and they're literally enforcing apartheid on their soil. So we can't even look to them as an example. Yeah. So catch that episode next week to find out more about Israel and its horrible, horrible regime. But until then, I'll see you next time. And thank you so much for watching.